If you don't mind, you can stick your finger in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, because that's where we'll be spending the bulk of our time today. But before we do that, I want to look together into Acts chapter 2. The reason I'd like to do this at the very outset of our time today is that I want us to demonstrate, I want us to see how the apostles reacted to Christ's resurrection. One of the important markers of Christianity, and particularly evangelical Christianity, is that we love the Word of God and we put great effort into teaching it week after week. The Word of God is our lamp. It's our light. It is all that we have ultimately to know God's mind. And as we study it in detail, we know God's mind and we see His character. We're able to react to Him and worship. But what was it that the early church thought about Christ and in particular His resurrection? And how did they react to it? Well, in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 36, we find the first Christian sermon, if we can say it that way. What was it that the first Christian sermon contained? What was it about? Well, let's listen to the words of Peter as you read God's Word. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs, that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, let's just pause there for a minute. Let's not forget who's saying this. Now, this is, this is on the heels of Pentecost. God has come down in the power of the Spirit and demonstrated that all the claims of Jesus are true. And Jerusalem is in a buzz because of what they've seen. And now Peter has basically two choices. Do I, do I cower in fear like I did on the night of Jesus' arrest and protect myself? Because still the Jewish authorities want to crush out Jesus' people. They've been, they'd been hiding out in a, in a dark sort of upper room for a while awaiting Jesus' promise. But now it's here. It's one thing to plan and anticipate, but now it's here. So Peter can shrink back in fear. That had that had been what he had done, or he can respond much differently after Jesus' resurrection. That's what he's doing. So now he says that these who have done this are lawless. He's changed. God raised him up, verse 24, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Hades there is just the grave. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, the Messiah. He was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, 
He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So the first time the apostles have a chance to testify of their Savior, they do it with boldness. They have been transformed both through Pentecost and through the risen witness of Jesus Christ. And now Peter calls his people, the Jewish people, to repentance. You see this in the ensuing verses where that's exactly what they do. They repent and are baptized, and the church grows explosively. So the work of Christ on the cross culminates in his being raised from the dead by his Father. This propels the apostles forward that the church might expand, that Jesus, who made all things, has now been brought back to life. The one who was responsible for creation is now making new creations. Peter, of course, is an example of that, and through the preaching of this new creation, other new creations might be made. And so I speak to you today out of gratitude as a new creation of Jesus Christ. And I speak to new creations today. And if you here today who were made by Jesus have not yet submitted to the one who died in your place and was resurrected that you might receive life, you too today can be a new creation if you will but trust him. So in Acts chapter 2, we find the response of the apostles to what they had seen their Savior do. Let's turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Eventually, this witness that Peter began in Jerusalem would spread. The church would grow. Converts would be made. And this would drive the Jewish authorities to great fury. Eventually, they would choose a man named Saul, his Greek name, Paul. And he would be responsible for wiping these upstarts, these who were in this furor over this supposed Messiah, to death. He was responsible for making sure that all those who proclaimed that Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God, that all of them would be killed. But of course, you know the story. This one named Paul, or Saul, was rescued by the risen Lord. In fact, on his way to murder more followers of Jesus of Nazareth on the way to Damascus, the risen Lord quite literally appeared to Paul blinds him both literally and metaphorically, and brings him to life. And Paul would, of course, become the great apostle to the Gentiles. And so as he writes these words in 1 Corinthians, he's speaking to a church that had all kinds of problems, and they desperately needed correction. But toward the end of this letter to the Corinthian church, he begins to speak specifically about the gospel lest they stray from it. And we would do well 
always to keep in mind the simplicity of the gospel. We have to be careful that we do not just become assumers of the gospel. I think this is a tragic epidemic in our evangelical church, particularly in the West, that we have an assumed gospel, and then we just want a bunch of stuff given to us so that we know what to do. So, somewhere on paper, it's written down that we believe the gospel. After a while, if it's not repeated, we don't even really know what it is anymore. But even assuming that perhaps some of us do, we get to the point where we just want a bunch of laws. Isn't that interesting? I've said to you many times that when it really comes down to it, I think the reason that most people, once they've heard the gospel, reject it is not because they cannot conceive of something free. If I were to meet you on December the 26th and say, what did you receive yesterday for Christmas? You wouldn't look at me quizzically and say, well, I don't know what you mean, what did I receive? You would rattle off two or three or four presents that you received. And when your loved one gives you a present, you know what it is. It's something free. They're not expecting something in return. You're not bartering. People understand the concept of a gift. No, the reason people reject free grace is not because they cannot conceive of something free. The reason people reject free grace is because they just don't want it. We want to be able to contribute something. But Paul comes here at the end of this letter and he reminds them of the gospel. And we've got to be careful as a church that we consistently rehearse the gospel in detail from many different angles and not run back to the law. Have you ever thought about that? People who say, I've heard the gospel enough times, I get it, just give me stuff to do. You see what they're doing? They're rejecting grace for law. Now certainly we need to know what to do in our worship of God, but do not be so quick to run to performance. We've got to be careful to consistently rehearse the performance of Christ, and then, and only then, may we talk about the way that we worship. So Paul starts out in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 by reminding them of the gospel. So he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Notice the progressive tense there. They have been saved, they are being saved by the same gospel. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This is the gospel. The gospel is not your worship. The gospel is not the songs that you sing. The gospel is not Bible stories. The gospel is a message of an historical reality that Jesus was crucified, buried, and raised by His Father. And in this gospel we hope, and if it is true what Paul says there in verse 2, that we are continually being saved by the gospel, it is of utmost importance that we continue to understand it and to rehearse it all the time. But you notice, the gospel is not merely about the cross. I think rightly so in evangelical Christianity, we emphasize the substitutionary death of Jesus, that he died the death that we deserved, and if we will trust him, if we will just receive him, we will receive his righteousness. So he takes the sin 
and he gives us his righteousness. Neither of those things is fair, but that's our only hope. And therefore we do well to rehearse that again and again and again. But if we leave off that he was resurrected from that burial, we only have half of a gospel. In fact, I think we could say we don't really have any gospel at all. Paul makes that pretty plain in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain from Peter to Paul and ever since. And your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. So what if you just have half of a gospel? It's no gospel at all. So that is why, again and again and again, we rehearse and proclaim and exult in the old story. You see, when it really comes down to it, we're not really saying anything that different than what Peter said 2,000 years ago in the first Christian sermon. We're really not saying anything that different than Paul, the rescued apostle, said not that long after that. We keep saying the same stuff. Why? Because of what he said in verse 2. The gospel is that by which we are continually being saved. So just to be clear, there's a sense to which, of course, whenever we receive Christ, we are saved. We call that justification. But of course, there's another sense to which we are being saved, which we call sanctification. So we are saved positionally. I'm justified. I'm no longer guilty. I have been declared righteous. But I am being saved by the righteous one, being made more righteous. And one day I will be fully rescued. And even then, as I am in the presence of the Savior, he will appear as a lamb, reminding me always as the risen atoner that he is my only hope from beginning to end. The gospel is what we need every day. But specifically, in what way do we need the resurrection? Specifically, how does the resurrection impact me, impact you on a daily basis? Well, I think 1 Corinthians chapter 15 explains that in great detail. But specifically, the capstone of the argument is in verses 45 to 58. So we're going to read those verses together, and then we'll talk about them and see what implications the resurrection has for us as God's people. Paul says, Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. 
I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. First thing that I want us to see today in verses 45 to 57 is that Jesus has conquered death and sin. It would do us well to rehearse the things that we have been talking about on Sunday mornings now for several weeks. At the beginning of the year, we began teaching verse by verse through the book of Genesis. So far, we've made it halfway through chapter 3. In these chapters, the creation of God is recorded. And specifically, through Moses' pen, we are reminded that God has powerfully and graciously created a world in which His image bearers may dwell and worship Him. So the primary thrust of Genesis chapters 1 and 2 is that God made an environment in which His image bearers might know Him and love Him and worship Him. This man, Adam, was created specifically in the image of God. As we talked about specifically in Genesis chapter 1, all of the Trinity was involved in creating. But specifically here, it's kind of interesting that it's pointed out that this first Adam, who was a living being, was the progenitor. He was the first one. But eventually there would become a last Adam who would be a life-giving spirit. So in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, we are told, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Isn't it interesting that Paul uses similar language here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15? So Adam was given life, and he was given life by God. He was of the earth. But the one who would come, the last Adam, who we know to be Christ, he would be a life-giving spirit. So Adam received life, if you think about it, at the very beginning, through the Son of God. But now the Son of God would come to all the progeny of Adam and offer them life once again. You see, the truth here is profound. Adam would never have been if the Trinity had not given him life. And now, the one who initiated life returns, comes back to the scene. But it's a different scene than when he first came. When he first showed up in the beautiful environment of planet Earth, 
Everything was good. We know that because he said it again and again. All that he made was good. Then he breathed breath into the nostrils of the first man, and that was very good. But we know from Genesis chapter 3 that Adam, the one who had the breath of God breathed into him, the one who was made in the image of God, spurned God, turned from God, and Adam died. And as we know from elsewhere in Paul's writings, in Romans chapter 5 specifically, in Adam all have died. Adam is what we call our federal head. That's theological language, but it makes sense to us. A federation is a grouping together of people in agreement. When the early colonies wanted some sort of governmental document to help them govern themselves, they came up initially with the Articles of Confederation. It bound them together under common laws. We live commonly, federally, under Adam. So when Adam sinned, it counted for all of the race. But that was not the end. The one who bore the image of God, the one who breathed the breath of God, would give rise to the whole human race. But God promised way back in Genesis chapter 3, as we discussed last week, that He would not leave things that way, that He would send a seed of the woman. And through that seed, He would crush the head of the serpent who had brought all of this to pass in the first place. So the original rebel, the anti-God, leads the image bearers away from God, and they too became anti-God. And ever since, as Adam's progeny, we have been resisting him, walking away from him, rejecting him, going our own way. The image of God has been marred in Adam's children. But the second Adam would not leave it that way. He came to reverse the curse and to make all things new. And so, as I've said, when Jesus came originally to the first creation, everything was good. But when Jesus took on flesh as the promised seed of the woman, things were not good. Turn with me, please, to John 11. In John 11, we gain perspective on the way that Jesus felt about the world around Him. This is subtle, but it's profound. John chapter 11 Jesus has special friends of one family. Their names are Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Lazarus And Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, has died. Jesus is summoned to try to help Lazarus, and in the intervening period, Lazarus passes away. And so, Jesus comes to the scene. And it's interesting in this context that He shows great emotion. He does this in part because he really loves this family. He had people that were very special to him. But there's more to it than just grief over his friend dying. Notice in verse 28 when Jesus shows up. When she had said this, Martha, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here, and he is calling for you. When she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. 
When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She's irritated, she's confused, she's mourning. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. The same Greek phrase behind this word that Jesus is deeply moved is the same word that is sometimes translated as a horse whinnying or, or sort of snorting in anger and frustration. It, it's a deeply um, charged word. Jesus is, is so moved. Well, why? Well, he, he sees Mary and Martha distraught. He sees the, the village distraught. And what does this lead him to? He says, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept, he said. So Jesus is weeping and Jesus is, is, is moved emotionally. Why? Because he saw the effects of sin. This one that he loved, Lazarus, was dead now. His sisters were mourning. They were inconsolable. Why? Because Adam had chosen to reject the Creator. Because Adam, who had everything, the one who had been given life, rejected the one who alone could satisfy him. And ever since, Lazarus and his sisters and we ourselves are resting under the curse of of sin and death. So what was it like when Jesus showed up? It was terrible. It was like Jesus was walking around with the walking dead. And there was no hope for reversal for them. So what does Jesus do? Jesus dies and is raised to make the dead come back to life. That's what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In verse 46 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul goes on to say, it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. In some ways here, he's speaking about chronology, but he's also talking about theological sequence. And here's what I mean. Paul is concerned to show that all the promises of God had been kept, had been fulfilled, And perhaps even to make it a little bit more clear, the crucifixion and resurrection had been planned. I think sometimes we have this idea that that God's up in heaven kind of wringing his hands trying to figure out how to remedy the problem. And it took him several thousand years, but he comes up with this clever idea and says, okay, I'll send you, Jesus, you're the second person of the Trinity, I'll send you down, I'll give you a body, you can die for them, you can give them their righteousness, you'll be raised. That's not the way this went. It was not an aha moment for God. It had been planned. As we've already said, we saw this last week. God shows up on the scene as soon as the first sin was committed, exposes the sin of the sinners, and then curses the serpent. But in the cursing, there is blessing because he says, not only on your belly will you crawl, but I'm going to do something even worse to you. I'm going to crush your head. But it's going to come through the bruising of the one who will do the crushing. So think about that. 
Jesus is going to be a rescuer. By, but by what means? How's he going to do it? It's going to bring damage to him. It's clear in Genesis 3.15 where the promise is given that he's going to be bruised. But it's only going to be his heel, which means that the damage is not extensive to the point that it's full and eternal. It's not going to be lasting. And through the bruising of the heel will come the bruising of the head of the serpent. Well, how was that borne out? How did it play out? Well, Jesus was bruised. And it was extensive to the point that he really died. But it was not extensive to the point that he stayed dead. He was raised. And through his bruising and through his resurrection, he crushed the head of the serpent. So you see, not only was the crucifixion, but also the resurrection promised from the very beginning. This was God's plan. So first came the spiritual. No, first came the natural. And then the spiritual. This was the plan of God. The plan of God was to allow sin to happen. This does not make God responsible for sin, but it demonstrates that he had a plan from the beginning. And mankind fell into sin inevitably, but God had a plan to fix it. The first man, verse 47, was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. This probably does not speak of Jesus' origin so much as it speaks of his being better. He's the one who is better. He's the life giver that we've already seen there in verse 45. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust, like us. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven, those who are in Christ, those who have trusted Christ. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Jesus has conquered death and sin. In a moment, we'll talk more about what it means to live as image bearers of God. But the hope here is that there's renewal. The hope here is that newness of life can be ours. We fear death. It's clear. If you've ever been to a funeral, and I assume all of us have, probably many, it's not fun. It's hard. It's hard especially whenever we are close to people, family members, friends. Death bothers us. It seems unnatural. There's something within us that even though we've come to expect death, it still feels like it's not quite right. That's why Jesus wept in John 11. That's why he cried out in emotional agony. And that's why he came to make all things new. That's why in verse 50, Paul can say, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. Paul's saying, I've got words of hope for you. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall all be changed. This thing that we fear, it will not hold us. Paul goes on to say, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. 
When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Jesus has conquered death. Jesus has conquered sin. When will this time be? I don't know. And neither do you. We just don't know. Could it be soon? Maybe. Might it be a long, long time? Maybe. We just don't know. But Paul anticipated it. And we anticipate it. And though we now live as renewed image bearers, enjoying God because of the curse reverser that has come, who was slain and resurrected, we look forward to the time when the curse is fully reversed, when everything is made new. And so, like Paul, we can say with confidence that death has no victory over us, that the final sting of the law, which is eternal separation, or the final sting of death, which is separation from God and our loved ones, will not last. It will be done away with. So sin slays us. In fact, it even uses good things to slay us. We know from Romans chapter 7 that the law itself is not bad. But sin takes occasion through the law and slays us. That is to say, God's law is perfect and reveals God's perfect character to us. And whenever we fail to keep God's law, we realize our sin and rest under his condemnation. And sin uses that to condemn us. But the law no longer hangs over. The law no longer condemns those who have trusted the one who is the life-giving spirit. For Jesus has conquered death and sin. So as Adam's progeny, we are under the curse. But there is another federal head that has come. There is another Adam, a last Adam. There is a life giver, much better than the one who was given life. This one gives life. And just like he breathed the breath of life into Adam He will now breathe new life into all of those who will trust Him. But this would not have been possible had He not been raised. And so now we have life, but we look forward to the time when we will have eternal life with Him for forever. You see this in some of our greatest stories. And by that I mean you see this longing for newness in our greatest stories. People tap into this and and create intrigue in their great stories. C.S. Lewis did this in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Aslan, the Lion King, is slain on behalf of a wayward child. The Ice Queen thought she had victory. But what she did not realize is that when she thought she had victory, her actions would be her undoing. For not only would the wayward son be redeemed, that lion would be resurrected and rescue his people in great victory. You see this in the return of the king eventually. Sam had not known that Gandalf had been raised. He had been on a journey alone with Frodo. Eventually he learns at the end that Gandalf had come back to life. He had been defeated by that evil devilish creature. 
but he had come back to life. He'd gone from Gandalf the Grey, somewhat of a common wizard, to Gandalf the White, the resurrected, conquering wizard. And Sam looks at Gandalf and he says, Gandalf, is everything sad coming untrue? You see, that's what the resurrection's about. Everything sad comes untrue. When Jesus comes to the tomb of Lazarus, what does he see? Brokenness and sadness and no prospect of life or hope. And you know what he did just a few short days later? He made the sad come untrue. And now Paul writes, as one who was dead and killing other people, one, however, who had been brought back to life, the dead brought back to life, like Paul, comes and preaches this message of the Corinthian church and preaches it now in a way to us today, and he says, everything sad is coming untrue. Death is swallowed up in victory. There's no more sting for us to fear. So the resurrection is necessary for victory over sin, victory over death. We know elsewhere in Paul's writings that in a way the resurrection is also necessary for our justification. Because how could we be declared not guilty if the one who brought justification was not raised? It would be empty. So think about the the sum of Jesus' work. As I've already said, he was there at the very beginning of creation, bearing light on the created order, shaping it and fashioning it, breathing life into the initial man, promised as the seed of the woman who would come, and then he came. And then he died, and then he was resurrected, and he's coming back, and the trumpet will blow, and he will conquer his enemies, and he will give life eternally to his people, and then we will dwell around him for forever, and he will be the light there in the world for us. We won't need the sun anymore, just like it was at the beginning. So from beginning to end, Jesus has done it all, and our confidence can be in him today and our confidence will be in him for forever. So Jesus has conquered sin and death. But secondly, here in this last verse, because of Jesus, we are being renewed to the original design. So why did God make Adam? Why did he make Eve? And why did he create them specifically in his image? And why did he breathe the breath of life to them? Why did he make them living souls? Why? Because he wanted them to enjoy him. He wanted them to worship him. So why did God make the world? God made the world for his glory. God made the world to enjoy. And it's a canvas upon which his glorious attributes could be painted. But specifically, even more specifically, he made Adam and Eve to be the ones upon whom his very image would be stamped. And through this, they would see what he was like. So when I see a mother love her child, what do I see? I see kindness. Where does that come from? It comes from the one who is kind, the one who made that kind and loving mother. When I see a church family sacrifice for one another, give their resources for one another, what does this reflect? It reflects the sacrificial love of Jesus. So you see, God made the world as a canvas upon which his attributes could be understood, but specifically he made us that his image might be seen and borne out. 
So he made the world to glorify himself, and he made us to glorify him. But because of the fall, that all fell apart. But because of Jesus, all this gets renewed. So in verse 58, Paul can say, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So through the resurrection, not only are we given hope for eternal life, we're given hope for this life. The original design is renewed. What was it Adam and Eve were supposed to do? They were to reflect God's glory. Specifically in being good stewards in the garden. They were to take care of it. Even more than that, they were to love one another. They were told to go have kids and to love them and to teach them about God. Adam and Eve had a lot of responsibility. And all this came before the fall. So we've said before, and we've talked about this as we've gone through Genesis, work is not a result of the fall. Hard work is a result of the fall. Work existed before the fall. There was responsibility a call to stewardship before the fall. So what's Paul talking about in 1 Corinthians 15, 58? He's talking about being good stewards in our spheres of responsibility. That means if you are the kind mother that takes care of children, keep doing that. But do it for God, and it counts, and it matters. And the resurrection has enabled you to do this with purpose. Your labor is not in vain, mother who takes care of children. The hardest job that there is. Your labor is not in vain, worker, when you go to work, man or woman. As you do what your boss says, as you work in submission, as you create and design and harness and do things for the good of culture and society, when you use your gifts as an employee for the good of others and help those around you, you're being a good steward. When you live and move and have your being in your church family and you use your gifts to bless other people, you're being a good steward. Husbands and fathers, as you lead your wives and lead your children and steward well, your labor is not in vain. So, so be steadfast. Be immovable. Be abounding, which means that your work should pour forth much like God did in creation. Your labor isn't in vain. See what Paul's saying here? If there's no resurrection, there's no hope. So what does it matter what we do? But if there is a resurrection, there's not only hope for the future, there's hope for now. And our labor is not in vain. So in our spheres of stewardship, May we be steadfast, may we be immovable, and may we always be abounding, for the labor is not in vain. So you see, the resurrection has changed everything. Jesus has conquered sin and death, and now because of Jesus, we are being renewed to the original design, that we might worship Him and glorify Him as image bearers reflecting just how great He is. This means that everything you do counts. Whether you're husbanding, I know that's not a verb, or wifing, or childing, whatever sphere in which you find yourself, it counts. That's why Paul can say in this same book, whatever you eat or drink, in fact, everything you do, 
Paul says. Do it to God's glory. Everything counts. Everything's in play. I think we can sort of look at this in a summarized way by looking at our resources. How are you using your resources? All of us have a little bit of money. Maybe not much. Some of them have a lot, but all of us got a little bit. What do we do with it? Your money is a reflection of where your heart is. It's your, it's your treasure store. As, as you use your money, what does it say about you? What about your gifts? It's very difficult for us as marred image bearers to not use our gifts to point people to us. Isn't that funny, though? They're just gifts. And they're gifts given for other people. And as we use our gifts not to draw attention to ourselves, but to draw attention to the one who gave them, then God is glorified and people are blessed. How are you using your gifts? How are you using your time? Time is a precious commodity, in some ways even more precious than our money. Is your time used for God's glory? Is it used for the good of other people? You see, as I've already said, everything is in play. And because of the resurrection, there is hope and there is coming an end. And for the glory of Jesus Christ who has given us life, may we use these gifts for His glory. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Now the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Day by day, we are being renewed into the image of the Creator. We see this elsewhere in Paul's writings in Colossians 3. Paul picks a specific sin. He says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. And so I end with those words. Use your resources for God's glory. Don't continue to do the things which dishonor God. Because after all, there's a new self, a a newly renewed image bearer. That's that's you if you have trusted Christ. What's the purpose of all of this? It's the end of verse 11 there and the verses in front of you on the screen. It's that Christ might be all and in all. So as we meditate on that for just a moment, I want you to remember the one who made everything, made everything for his glory, And the one who agreed to be the redeemer of mankind has done this, yes, for your joy, just like he made creation for your joy, but he's also done it for his glory. So as he has come, and as he died, and was buried, and resurrected, he did this that he might be the glorious one, the one who is all and in all. And that makes 1 Corinthians 15, 58 very, very important. He made all things for His glory, including you. And He has rescued you, and He is rescuing you. And one day He will fully rescue you for His glory. Everything you do matters. May the resurrection call us to hope that Christ has conquered sin and death. And may the resurrection call us everything 
because everything's in play for his glory. That's what we celebrate today.